that I think when seedlings are transplanted, there's a little bit of a collective loss that shapes their identity and forms the resiliencies of the collective system of who they are. Hello and welcome to Dispersion. Dispersion is a podcast by the Zorian Institute that seeks to analyze and celebrate both the diverse and common experiences of diasporas living away from their homeland. I'm your host, Jen. In this week's episode, we had the pleasure of speaking with two diasporan Canadians, Chang Zhu and Athena McGann. We discussed the definition of the term diaspora, its history, and how our relationships with being part of a diaspora group may change and evolve over time. So, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Chang and Athena. Welcome to Dispersion. By way of an introduction, um, I want to speak to you both a little bit about your background. So, Athena, you came to Canada from the Philippines at age four. Can you tell us a little bit more about your reason that your family migrated to Canada um, and a little bit of background about yourself? Yeah, thanks. And it's nice to be here with you. And I'm looking forward also to hearing the story of, of my co-invite. I, we came to Canada. I was four. I was born in the Philippines. And we had kind of bounced back and forth between the Philippines, where my mother's family is from, and India, where my father's family is from. And uh, my two older brothers were born also in the United States. So we did kind of bounce back and forth to uh, whatever work opportunities were happening at the time. And then when we came to Canada, it was because my father had received uh, a position at the University of Alberta. And uh, so that's where they decided to settle. And Chang, your story of why your family initially came to Canada is a bit different than Athena's. Can you tell us a little bit about your family's reason for migrating and how that experience was? Absolutely. I'm uh, first of all, I'm really happy to be here um, and uh, really, really interesting to talk about the diasporic experience and um, very interesting to hear your experiences, um, Athena. Um, so a little bit about uh, my migration to Canada. Uh, so when I was nine years old, my mother, um, we were living in China at the time, and uh, she was working for a very large state-owned company. And what had happened at the time was that um, throughout the course of several years, there had been this uh, transition of power uh, within the state-owned enterprise. And with that transition of power, uh, there were, um, let's say, purges is the is the word that comes to mind immediately. And uh, what ended up happening was that um, the new management decided to get rid of everyone who was not loyal to um, the new head. And so my mother was a middle manager in the company at the time. And so there were a lot of um, charges that were thrown at her um, that were pretty trumped up. So she was essentially being politically persecuted um, and needed a reason to find safe refuge. And so when I was nine years old, my mother and I came to Canada um, to seek that political refuge. So we, uh, we, we left China as a result of political persecution. So thank you both for sharing. So two very different Uh, experiences, factors that influenced your arrivals in Canada as children, which is interesting when we think about the evolution of the concept of diaspora and what it means to be part of a diaspora group. 
in its simplest understanding, if we look at the term diaspora, it refers to the dispersal of people from their original homeland. So until relatively recently, this term was most closely associated with the dispersion of the Jewish people. Um, although we have extensive historiographies of the Armenian, Greek, and African diasporas. But I'd say since around the 1980s, the term has become much more widespread, much more commonplace um, in scholarship and in kind of general lingo, um, and is sometimes even considered synonymous with migration. But Chang, how would you describe your personal relationship with the term diaspora? How do you understand it? How does it, has it changed for you? How does it change for you over time? Yeah, this is a really, really interesting question. And, you know, it's one that I actually wrestle with a lot because um, I think the term diaspora is pretty complex, especially when we look at it in the context of like academic scholarship and how it's used. Um, but the one or rather the two characteristics about diaspora that I'm able to ascertain is that it encompasses a sense of displacement, so displacement from your geographic homeland or point of origin. And um, the other characteristic in my understanding of diaspora is that there is this sense of connection to that homeland from which you have been displaced. Um, so in that sense, I have a complex relationship with this word because Ever since I came to Canada, I've very seldomly identified my homeland as being China. Of course, I was born there and I spent a good number of years of my childhood in China, but a, a, a greater proportion of my life is spent in Canada. Um, my roots are set in Canada. Uh, you know, my profession, my identity, my education, most of that was done in Canada. So. I didn't really feel a connection to the homeland, quote unquote. And moreover, the terms of our displacement from China made it more difficult for me to relate or to connect with what would ostensibly be my ancestral um, home. So in that way, a lot of the times I don't really identify with this term of diaspora, at least I don't consider myself diaspora because of that break in connection with the homeland. I think that's really interesting, that idea that maybe diaspora is something too, that is a label you don't necessarily just assume, right? It's not something you automatically fall into, but it's something you have to choose to identify with. Cheng, you mentioned that you your roots are in Canada. That's really interesting because I think that's another thing that we um, we kind of ascribe to people, that your roots are where you come from and maybe that's where you were born or where your family's from. So do you also consider your roots to be defined by different? You mentioned profession and education. Is that concept of being rooted somewhere different, you think, in your understanding than maybe the common understanding? Um. Not necessarily. Um, I think it just maybe takes a little bit of nuancing, right? Because, um, you know, like Bob Dylan said, I'm a rolling stone kind of thing. <laughs> um, right. So, you know, so for instance, uh, even if we think about the very literal image of a plant that has roots, um, it can establish root by being seeded and it can sprout roots where it was originally planted. But very often we can take seedlings, uproot them, 
and reroute them somewhere else. And they would be just as um, uh, uh, well adapted to that new environment as where they had originally sprouted. So in that sense, maybe that's how I see root, that uh, it's not defined um, and bounded by time and space. It's, um, it's, it, it, it can transform and transplant as a result of movement, as a result of agency. And uh, for me, it's just um, uh, where I see myself having roots is where I see myself having landed and having established and kind of really finding my own two feet underneath me. I think that's really fascinating. And we'll get into that a bit more when we talk about identity formation um, and how much of that is a, a decision and decisions we continue to make as we go through that process. Athena, would you say some of that resonates with you as well? How do you define diaspora and how do you relate to it? It's really interesting because my experience and my perspective seem very at, at another end of the spectrum. So um, I should clarify first that my parents came to Canada as a result of having finished studies and job seeking. So they came as economic migrants to begin with. Um, but how I define diaspora, I think, has, has evolved over time. But it is something that of course, I learned about diaspora through the academic literature, but it was also kind of an experience as I grew up. We, I have lived outside of Canada more than in as a result of not only the diaspora experience, but just where family and where family lives and where work opportunities have been provided. So I would suggest that my experience or identification with diaspora is complex as a result of the historical journeys that my family has had, but also the political journeys influencing those, which I think are very different than Cheng's, but to some degree, my family was also involved in the Philippines. Uh, there is political violence there that was subject to my mother's family that were, was, was an influencing factor for her to choose to leave the Philippines to go to school in the United States, as was intergenerationally. My father was nine years old when the 1949 partition of India divided Pakistan and India. And he, with his family, he walked over 16, 1,600 miles and lost nine of the members of his immediate family as they migrated from present-day Pakistan to present-day New Delhi. And so the disconnection from the homelands, I think, has also been very mixed with nostalgia, wanting to return to a space of, of feeling connected to their ancestors, feeling connected to their land and their culture, not unlike how Indigenous peoples here in Canada describe feeling connected to the land and their livelihoods as being inextricably woven to the land and just how they related to their environment. So in some ways, I, I do feel connected to the term diaspora, but recognizing that the term as it's taken up in the academic literature is limited, but expanding and recognizing that there is intergenerational trauma, that there are, uh, I teach a lot about spirit injuries and how people disconnected from their ancestry and disconnected from their homeland. It's a, it's a palpable feeling of, of loss. So I think in that respect, I, I identify very strongly as someone who has, at least to me, the term diaspora indicates a sense of, of loss or a sense of chosen or, or otherwise exile or post-colonial exile in the fact that after these influences of political violence and colonialism, my family could never return to their homelands in the same way. I certainly don't have the connection. I didn't grow up with the connection to my grandparents in the way that I I had to fight for the ability to speak and learn the languages of my grandparents so that I could be understood by them. 
at the time in Alberta growing up in the 1970s, it certainly wasn't fashionable for you to speak anything other than English. And it certainly wasn't fashionable to do yoga or to eat foods that smelled like curry or, or dance, traditional dances that, that, that had music that sounded weird, uh, as one might do in the Philippines um, in the Canadian context. So it was a slowly fought for pride in my cultural heritage that I kind of learned as an adult as a result of all of these years of effort and trying to connect and the nostalgia in trying to connect. Like I remember, I mean, there, there are stories too in what it felt like to connect with the diaspora of my, of my ancestors. So I remember um, my parents, the excitement that they had during long distance phone calls when they spoke with their relatives was very different than when they spoke with their colleagues or just regularly in the home environment or when they received those small blue airmail letters from the back in the day when the airmail airmail letters had templates they were sky blue pieces of paper where you could write in a very prescribed amount of space what the news was and send that overseas they would be so excited to receive those blue airmail letters i remember when movies like gandhi came out or when miss saigon cast a filipino like those those instances helped me feel connected to my homeland and helped inform what being a diaspora uh, member of my family meant. It just It's interesting to hear Cheng's experience um, that seemed very different than mine, but still part of the overall umbrella of the diaspora, like what it is to be a child of the diaspora. And that's just what I was going to touch on. I think in different stories in many ways, different details and different trajectories but some commonalities there and you both at one point Athena you mentioned kind of there's a level of loss to being part of diaspora and Chang you mentioned that there's an innate level of displacement so there's some obvious sacrifice there but I think that's interesting in how the term is changing as well and you both interact with it in an academic sense as well so how we think about diaspora and maybe the push factors of diaspora are also evolving over time. So when we think about the, the term originating with the Jewish diaspora, there's some obvious push factors there, but now maybe the term is opening up more to pull factors. We've got kind of economic migration and things like that. So I think it's interesting to consider how it will change over time as we include new diasporas under that umbrella. So we've talked about this a little bit already, but maybe let's speak more on, so when we talk about diaspora, and being part of a diaspora, the relationship to the homeland on one hand and to the hostland on the other is a really significant part of the conversation. So often the connection to the homeland forms the basis of a collective diasporan identity and in a way tethers, whether this is a positive or a negative, to the individual to this community. So even after the departure from the homeland, this relationship continues and it manifests in different ways. While the hostland often plays a role in, in forming an identity and then introduces you to different cultural influences that have to interact, engage, I mean, sometimes even compete with your existing identity. So, Athena, when you settled in Canada, when your family came to Canada, did, do you remember them seeking out diaspora communities? Like, was there an effort to find organizations or establish networks, maybe even kind of restaurants or those markers of a community? Do you, do you remember that? I do. And it was, uh, well, I don't remember the intentional seeking out process, but I do remember actually just that being part of my day-to-day. -day. So as a result of my mother's trying to network with, in Edmonton, there was the Filipino Bayanihan Association where we 
she took a leadership role in that in that um, in that organization. So I remember being part of, I think, monthly dinners, and then we would have weekly dance rehearsals to perform, say, dances or uh, different types of traditional uh, types of ceremony within the Philippine diaspora, but also for a Canadian multicultural audience. I think in Edmonton at the time, and I haven't been back for I think since I was seventeen, but. When I, I remember being part of this thing that Edmonton would celebrate called Heritage Days, where there would be all of these members dancing, singing, performing cultural aspects of their cultures from whatever country they were from. And then there would be kiosks with food that you could sample from different cultures. So I remember being an active part of that every year. And then I remember also taking Hindi lessons with my father's trying to network through the University of Alberta Association of, of, I don't think that there was a a formal name for the group of teachers who were from India or had Indian descent and were trying to teach Hindi to their families. So I remember being part of those, reaching out to different communities and we had family friends or family members who would come visit us. So there was some connection in that respect. And then I think my family did take the opportunity to, again, take us to see movies that talked about different aspects of their their culture but at the same time there was also this this closed it still felt very closed and I remember my feeling in in Edmonton growing up that it wasn't cool to be brown it wasn't cool to be anything but white and I remember feeling almost ashamed of having to perform my culture because perhaps the costumes weren't what I would want to be seen by my friends at school or they just were made out of a fabric that I wasn't used to the colors are brighter than I remember my friends wanting to wear. So I just felt still very trying to understand it um, in a way that I understood was different. So although I was excited to be parts of these opportunities, because as a kid, just practically, I really liked to dance and I liked, I liked athleticism. So it was really nice to be involved in these activities. But it just also made you feel different in a space where I didn't have anyone else who were my friends at school to attend these rehearsals or go to these meetings or or speak the language and because you're you're younger and you can't master it very well or I had no context to master it particularly well and it wasn't encouraged necessarily by my, my parents in the community it may have been encouraged at home but not out in the community where you feel like you're trying to assimilate so in some ways it was also confusing as to where it's okay to be able to practice your ethnicity so it felt I guess to say it felt performative but still still a welcome to me but it was confusing to understand where the place was and where it sit and where I sat alongside with it growing up oh which which does remind me actually to something that Chang said earlier if I may um uh, it was interesting that the um, Chang was mentioning that can, looking at seedlings that are transplanted but can still have can still healthily adapt to their new environment I also consider diaspora or the experience of diaspora as kind of dandelion seeds that blow in the wind and they can take shape and they can reroute. But I still, I'm not sure if I agree necessarily there is even scientific evidence that suggests that seedlings can adapt, but not as robustly or not as healthy. And there can be some maladaptations with transplanted seedlings. So I would sit on the side of the <laughs> academic argument that I think when seedlings are transplanted, there's a little bit of a collective loss that shapes their identity and forms the resiliencies of the collective system of who they are as, as, a, as a member of a forest. So I, I have, again, like I said earlier, it's taken a long time for me to feel that my 
understanding of who I am, even though I've been to the Philippines and India multiple times for multiple years in a row, it's different every time I go back. It's different the way I'm received because of the experiences that I've had in compared in comparison to the experiences that my family and their communities may not have received. So there is there's there are still not there's nostalgia in going back. There's nostalgia in connecting. There's there is a sense of comfort in connecting to those moments and pockets of ethnicity, but I wouldn't call it whole or complete in a way that being embedded in that context fully may be. And I think that's what's so interesting and worthy of why we study diaspora and why the conversation needs to continue to happen almost all the time, because those conceptions of what it means to be diaspora and where I am as a person in a diaspora changes. I think, Athena, you at least for me, nailed it on the head as well when you talk about when you return, how you may feel different. You could go every two years for, you know, 10 years and will you feel different every time you're there? Most likely, at least in my experience and in my opinion. And I really like this analogy that we've we've started to develop about the seedlings. And I think I, I, I so agree with different parts of what you've both said. And there's something I think to be said when we look at the evolution of plants as well, sometimes it takes them a long time to whether they've been transplanted to then fully adapt to that environment and and if we take that in kind of the sense of of humans maybe that's generations maybe we look at it that way that you're looking at generations of people who have been displaced at some point in time and then are acclimatizing to this new environment and maybe in the beginning there's a collective loss there maybe that changes over time but I like this analogy we're using <laughs> I think it's a good one to to track that experience so Chang, a similar question for you, going back to what we were talking about. Do you remember in, in your childhood a concerted effort to stay connected to the homeland? As you've, you've mentioned, you had quite a different experience in coming to Canada and why you and your mother came to Canada. Do you remember seeking out a connection to the Chinese community? You know, that's a really interesting question. And um, having heard, um, you know, Athena's experience and, and, and kind of how she described the formation of her diasporic experience, it, it really enlightened me about, you know, how my relationship with diaspora is really shaped by, by the circumstances of my upbringing and, and, and my, uh, you know, leaving China. And so um, to answer your question, no, um, not actively, because one of the things that really struck me in my childhood experiences that, so we first landed in Toronto, which, um, and by the way, Athena, I also lived in Edmonton for a number of years. And uh, believe me, I know what you mean when you say there is not a lot of diversity in Edmonton and it does not pay <laughs> to be different in Edmonton. So I, I am with you 100% on that one. Um, but we landed in Toronto and, uh, you know, obviously one of the most diverse cultural centers in Canada. And uh, despite all of the available community, civil society organizations, uh, you know, the different ethnic organizations that were available, there were no concerted effort or no, no conscious effort anyways on either mine or my mother's part to really seek that out. In fact, I would argue that what we did was the complete opposite is that we tried really, 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 really hard to assimilate, really hard. Um, 
you know, my mother, uh, she enrolled herself in, in, in ESL classes. Um, the, the, she, um, unlike many of my, um, uh, my classmates in elementary school who were also um, of Chinese descent, uh, they always went to Chinese schools on Sundays, Chinese language schools. My mother never sent me there. She never even kind of like um, posed it as an option for me to do that. Um, and uh, yeah, so for me, it was, it was really just about, for my mother and I, it was really just about accomplishing this project of assimilation into the Canadian main, mainstream, however defined. And, and something I found really interesting, just, just in retrospective back at it, um, you know, in conversations that I had with my mother about life in China and what it was like in China, there is always this under, undertone of, of resentment, of, uh, of anger, um, of what had happened to us. And in that way, I think from my mother's perspective, and, and she may have passed a lot of that down to me, is that we were rejected by our homeland, by our home. And as a result, we needed to find a new home. And because we had found a new home, it's time to, for us to forget about the trauma and the sadness around the circumstances of our previous home. It, it's almost as if we were ending a bad relationship and we were entering into a new relationship that, that was good, that we, we thought we might be able to flourish in. So, so we just wanted to disconnect and separate ourselves from that past to the extent that was possible. Right. And in, and you mentioned Toronto being what it is, and even then would have been a huge cultural center. So I find that really fascinating in many ways that even within that, that environment of so many different ethnicities, so many different population groups, it, in a way, I can imagine it would have been maybe not a challenge, but it would have taken a lot of effort to remain so steadfast in that dedication to assimilating and to, yeah, and you mentioned other classmates or friends. Did Was there anyone in the community that, that tried to kind of offer, tried to bring you into that community? Or did you really kind of were on this tunnel of, I'm in Canada now, I'm a Canadian, I'm going to fully take on this lifestyle do you remember any kind of tension there or oh yeah there were definitely a ton of tension for sure right and um and and now that we're on the subject of tension um i think you know i would definitely agree with athena on her point about the seedling not being able to thrive to its full potential if it was in its indigenous environment mm. and and this is the tension that i personally experienced it's that um it's it 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 it, it, it kind of doesn't matter that toronto is a center of multiculturalism you still feel your difference um as a member of a minority group and it doesn't matter how hard you try to fit in um, and assimilate to the norms, the conventions, the cultural practices, and the behaviors. Um, 
it, it, you know, phenotypically, someone would still look at me and, and say, this person is different. Um, and so there were a lot of tensions there. And, you know, as a child, I always found that to be my biggest barrier uh, to assimilation, which was a goal that I had internalized. It's a goal that my mother had internalized. Um, and, uh, and, and it became challenging because um, there, when we came up across those tensions of difference, it did feel at least to a little extent like it was another form of rejection. Um, and so in that sense, the kind of behavior that I have adopted in response was to just double down, just to go harder to assimilate. Um, and so, yeah, so, so there were uh, quite a bit of tension there. Um, and, um, and, and, and upon reflection, um, it, it really did seem like although the assimilation project was, I would say, by and large successful, uh, it was not without its obstacles and challenges. Right. And without its lasting impact from the sounds of it, which is understandable. Now, you've, we've come across the fact that you both lived in Edmonton at one time, which is really interesting. So maybe let's talk a little bit more about within Canada. So we've, you're in Canada now, um, and we're getting older as well. You're both growing up in Canada. So Athena, you've lived and worked across Canada in different provinces. Did you have a different experience in different places? Did you feel more at home in one or the other? Was the diaspora experience different? Yeah, very much so. And thank you. And I've just been listening. So, so much of what Cheng was just saying also resonates with me uh, about those tensions. And I will, maybe I'll start, maybe I'll kind of work backwards. So I'm, I'm now in Victoria. I've been here since 2017 and I do very much feel like I've not found my people or uh, I just feel, feel very much like, as Cheng was saying, phenotypically, I stand out. So I feel that, I, I felt that less in Toronto. I think I've lived in Toronto, Montreal, um, and mostly just Edmonton, Toronto, Montreal, and now Victoria is where I've principally landed in, in, in Canada. And I think that the tensions that, Cheng was talking about with respect to just almost a sense of shame with having to be from somewhere else was something that I felt very, very strongly in Edmonton to the point where, and maybe it was also just a product of the time, my parents coming here in the 1970s felt that they needed to assimilate in Canadian culture. And so we were sent to school in French and English. We, while we did have classes within their community centers about speaking our country speaking our languages so that we could communicate with our grandparents we never spoke our languages outside of the home and it was always something that was kind of shushed or it just it just wasn't done because they didn't want to appear too different even though we were already very obviously different so I I grew up speaking French and English more than the languages that they spoke or that I had learned as a child before coming to Canada and then I still to this day speak like a five-year-old with my grand or in the languages of my of my families overseas, despite the amount of time that I have spent overseas trying to reconnect with family or working in different contexts where family were located. So uh, just because my family also that reciprocity or recognition that there's also a certain amount of social capital that or, or just 
class that comes with speaking English. And so my family tries to speak English with me in a way to symbolize that they can connect with this culture that represents richness to them in their worldview. And that shame, I think, even my mother, uh, I think, passed down to us with we needed to come to Canada and speak without an accent because she took ESL languages as well um, before she came to Canada, but when, before she went to go study in the United States, she took ESL to the degree and it was her ambition to not speak English with any discernible accent. And so she worked on that for years. And my aunts to this day, uh, my, my mother sometimes doesn't like associated with the fact that they speak English with very broken accents. Um, she feels like it's something that, that, you need to assimilate in your Canadian homeland. And uh, part of that is, is reflecting that you are part of the language, you are part of the culture. My mother even converted to a Christian religion that was founded in North America so that she could completely be in this context of what it is to be Canadian or American at the time. So I think to answer your question, I have felt, I think intergenerationally, what it feels to be a direct immigrant in Canada and what it feels to be disconnected from your homelands in Canada. I think I have experienced it differently in different cities. And in Toronto, I felt very much, yes, uh, I had had a group of people that looked like me or that were diverse in ways that I felt diverse. And they were just more highly concentrated in Toronto um, that I have yet to find in Victoria. Um, so Edmonton very much was not a pleasant experience for me, and I have no pleasant memories of my time at Edmonton. And I think even to this day, we won't know, but my father passed away when I was 13. From everything that we've been able to piece together, the racism that he experienced in his workplace and the trying to assimilate but not fully being able to because of his, as an adult, it must have been harder for him to do so, um, and the anger and resentment of having to do so. Uh, I think cumulatively had just impacts on his own mental health. And I think one thing that Chang talked about that I also resonated with just uh, before I lose this thought is just wanting to forget, just needing to forget being rejected from one's homeland. I think the circumstances obviously are very different from China than India and in partition, but I am seeing in the older generation, my, certainly my relatives and just generally art that I'm seeing and literature that I'm seeing coming out from, from India now, generations as they prepare to, to die or to pass on want to transmit their stories. And so there's a resurge in interest in the Indian, like the generation that survived diaspora would never talk about it. It was this thing that was regarded as shameful that it even happened to their collective memories. And so to move on from that, you needed to just assimilate and accept and move forward with times as they were now and accept where you were in your new communities and try to thrive in, the new, in your new communities despite this violent history. But I'm now seeing stories come out, again, within the literature, within art from my own relatives, wanting to tell their stories, people that they had remembered, that they had lost, friendships, family members, and just the feelings of having survived these experiences. I think that there's a resurgence in wanting to tell those stories, maybe to deal with the in some way, I have heard wanting to deal with the injustice and the intergenerational perceptions of trauma that that has incurred, but also just because of that's a part of their new heritage. And so the next generation, maybe now that the next generation has had their roots firmly planted, knowing that part of their history can build on who they are to, 
to perhaps build the resiliencies of who they need to be in the future. I think that's interesting when we think about identity as well. Um, and, and Cheng, you mentioned this too, and we'll dive into that a little bit more in a second. Identity and, and do you have to take one off and put it aside to assume a new one? How do we have a duality? How do we have hybrid identities? And how do those change? But before we get into that, Cheng, you've also lived across Canada. You mentioned Edmonton. And if you're inter- if you're willing to speak about it, your experience in the armed forces as well, has that have you had different experiences across Canada as being part of a diaspora or feeling like one place was most at home or most represented a home for you? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, uh, before I answer it, can I just quickly respond to a point that um, that Athena brought up that um, that I really, really love? Um, so it was just on the um, uh, on the part where the the older generation kind of tries to impart in the younger generation of the diaspora about you know kind of finding your place within the new community uh, within the host community and, and and trying to 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 fit in there and I you know if I were to speak from my mother's experience I I think that's exactly what happened I think you know, at such a young age, that's exactly the, the the values that my mother tried to impart with me. And and if I may even put it so bluntly, I think, you know, I, I don't want to put words in, in my mother's mouth, but but I, I think she would agree to this to some extent. It's there's almost this sense of that, you know, Canadians and Canada, quote unquote, let us come to this country when we were faced with horrible circumstances back in China. And as a result, it's as if we have to accept the terms of fitting in within the new community, within the new home, no matter what what it is. You know, as long as it's not worse than what it was in China, we're willing to accept the price, whatever it may be. And... Um, and I don't think she ever put it to me so bluntly, but, you know, like, uh, um, and, and, and as a segue back into your question, um, Jen, is that uh, a large part of why I joined the Canadian Armed Forces was because my mother really pushed me when I was, when I was young. And the idea was that, you know, Canada let us in, Canada gave us a future, Canada, you know, um, allowed us to, 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 thrive as human beings and therefore there was a debt to be paid that there was something that was owed to the nation state and that um, the way in which that debt is to be paid back uh, was in the form of armed service and um, and and so you know that that factored majorly into my decision to join the Canadian Armed Forces after school and and you're right it did take me all over the country uh, in the form of different types of postings. And, um, you know, I really have to say there was not any particular location that I felt really, really connected to. And, and, and that's honestly just a product of the nature of the job in the military is that you know you are going to have to up and move every couple of years. Um, so... I never really formed any strong attachments to any piece of physical geography um, as a result. Now, that being said, though, 
the experience as a minority uh, across the different communities in Canada were wildly uneven, as as Athena have already alluded to. Um, so, for one, um, in Edmonton, uh, well, sorry, let me back up a bit. So, the places in which I have lived um, are in Kingston, Ontario, in um, in this small town called Oromocto, which is just outside of Fredericton um, in New Brunswick. Um, I've lived in Shiloh, Manitoba, which is just outside of Brandon, and uh, as well as Edmonton. So those and Toronto, of course. So those are the uh, some of the places that I, I've lived uh, during my my stay in the military. And other than Toronto, uh, we're really talking fairly rural communities, um, fairly blue collar working class, and um, and and fairly white um, for the most part. And you know, throughout um, my entire time in each of these different communities, the feeling of an outsider, the feeling of difference was very, very stark. And, um, and, and it definitely took a lot to try to um, kind of look past that, look past the difference. And uh, because at the end of the day, I was where I was because I had a job to do. So to really focus on that task at hand, and one thing I will say was that when I returned to Toronto at the end of my military service, I started to even feel a little bit of that outsiderness, even in Toronto, even in this really diverse and multicultural city. I started to be very keenly aware of when people were commenting on my difference, when people were... Um, maybe treating me a little bit differently. And it was never something I had noticed growing up in Toronto. It was only after I had left the military that I had started my career in academia that I really started to feel that, wow, even in this really diverse, really multicultural urban center, which is supposedly very metropolitan and cosmopolitan, um, that I still really, really feel the difference and and it's um it's something that I have a hard time reconciling because in my mind I've served this country for close to a decade and to still feel like an outsider after that is something that's a little painful at times and at other times it's it's uneasy and frustrating I'm sure like endlessly frustrating I can relate to that interest. And I liked how you put it, the not attaching yourself to something geographically. My father is in, and was in the military growing up. I moved around every couple of years as a child. And I've always wondered, and I'm wondering right in this moment, if that has impacted my experience as part of a diaspora. Has it maybe modified it or changed the way I understand um, being part of a community when I was so used to being displaced in a way uh, every kind of year or so? So very, a very interesting way of putting it, um, especially with that relationship that you have to the armed forces. 
we can't talk about diaspora, we can't talk about being part of a diaspora without talking about the concept of identity. And identity in and of itself is a huge, huge conceptual topic. Um, but I think if we talk about how the two relate, how being part of a diaspora forms identity, how it shifts identity, um, that that's an interesting relationship there. And we've touched on it a little bit. But Athena, could you talk to us a bit more about, so your mother is Filipino, your father is Indian. Did you, at one point in time, do you identify with one background over another? And how have you stayed in contact with both your cultural history and your family? Is it equal? Is it unequal? So uh, do I identify with one more than the other? Actually, if I may, let me just circle back and talk to something that Chang was talking about and that you mentioned about just kind of not attaching as your way of coping. Because I resonate with that. And I, I, it made me realize, as you were both speaking, that I think I certainly, in all the places I lived in, in Canada and the world, and I, I forgot to mention I lived in St. Catharines for a number of years before moving to Toronto, working in a very rural context. And I had always felt very different. I always felt like the only brown person in the room, and especially as a brown bilingual person, that was also very different. And so I, re I resonate in some ways with what Cheng was saying about being treated differently and noticing it as an adult for the first time, depending on the context of where you are, that can be very painful. Um, so I just wanted to, to reflect on what I think, as I'm hearing you speak about you mentioning that you move around, moved around a lot and Chang saying as parts of military service, you focus on the task, like we're task oriented, not necessarily relationship or self oriented. And so you need to detach very quickly to go to the next deployment. I similarly being deployed in the humanitarian sector, recognize that uh, I could be moving as a family, we moved very frequently and as a humanitarian actor, I'm deployed very quickly, also very frequently. And in some ways, my lament of the humanitarian sector for quite some time was there's so many good people, but their hearts are just not attachable um, just because they, they move so frequently around the world. But that doesn't say that impacts their inability to connect with people or do good work. It's just it's hard to to feel friendly. It's hard to have friends in that sector after a time. And then I realized in some ways that lack of attaching or just that desire to stay not aloof, but just detached, I think for me too, was a way to cope. I was drawn into this profession to help other people because of my own family circumstances, having had adversities as a result of migration or diaspora. But I also feel like professionally, I created that detachment because it felt more safe because I wouldn't be hurt by people who would just recognize my difference or ostracize me even more than I already felt ostracized because of my difference. And so in that respect, I think that shaped my identity to do what I do now. Um, and just being a product of two different countries where, yes, there are these cultural things that I could attach to or these traditions, but even the perceptions of each other, even the perceptions of each country that each had towards the other was also complex. So not, I do identify now as I call myself Indipino, half Indian, half Filipino, but I recognize that there are going to be some differences that I won't necessarily share with my Indian relatives completely. Um, and there aren't going to be some characteristics and cultural practices that I share 100% necessarily with my Philippine side of the family. But I don't see that as a deficit so much as I think that they complement each other. So I try to practice both aspects of the culture with 
both sides of the family to the degree that I'm able. And both sides of the family are actually quite open in hearing about the symbolism behind some of these cultural practices. And then alongside the cultural practices of that half of the family is also what we might do in Canada or what we might do differently in Canada. And I think there's a sense of curiosity that exists now when I have these conversations than there was when I was growing up. And most of this is probably because of now that I have a child or now that I'm I'm raising a child to have kind of a sense of that torch being passed down to him, both sides of the family want to see that happen. So I think that was that's a gift now that I didn't have growing up, um, that intergenerational, intergenerational sense of continuity and, 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 and connection. Um, after my father died when I was 13, there was a complete disconnection that I, from my father's side of the family that I learned was actually culturally practiced or culturally appropriate that felt like a personal rejection for a number of years. Um, so again, referring back to having to fiercely fight for my understanding of what it is to be Indian was largely done independently that just because of the geographical distance and the dislocatedness, I don't know if there would have been any other way, but um, at the time too, it, it wasn't completely possible with given the limitations of how we connect, but now there's WhatsApp, there's um, Skype, there's Facebook messenger and these informal social me social media channels and even Twitter for some of my uncles is how we keep in touch with, with my family and the ability to be brief in communications therefore can sometimes equate to unsentimental connections, which for some of my family members is the preferred way of, of connecting. We don't necessarily need to say, I love you or I remember you when blah, blah, blah. It's just some families are very formal in their, in their need to connect and that affection, I think, isn't easily communicated in ways that could be expected otherwise. Um, so it has changed my ability to identify with one aspect of the culture or with both cultural sides of my family. They have changed as I've become an adult, growing up knowing more who I am and where I come from, I suppose, but also more significantly in having my own child and wanting to have that form bridged over generations or that, that trauma or that loss healed over generations, I think is, is probably the focus now. And then we, to answer your third question, I think um, use social media to connect in ways that are, that still feel safe, connected, but still unsentimental, I think, as we grapple with what it means to be living in a globalized world, but still disconnected as a result of diaspora. And that, so that element of social media coming into the diaspora and identity, I think, has really shifted for a lot of people how they partake in a diaspora. Digital diasporas and these concepts are really coming to light, obviously, especially in the past year as well, as more and more people use digital forms to connect and what that will mean for people who are part of multiple diasporas. Yes, will it make it more attainable to stay connected to forms of identity that, that you would have had to leave behind and kind of, you know, put on the shelf before. If I may just mm -hmm. circle back to one thing that Cheng said, or just one thing that I'm feeling from what Cheng is saying is, um, there's also just a, a feeling like the losses that one, the, the losses, I think the post, the exile that he describes is certainly different than, than my family's exile, but there's still a feeling of 
of exile that my family has experienced and the losses and the, the sadness as I, I feel when I hear Cheng's story is, is I think a palpable one that most immigrants could probably relate to. Um, trying to connect also to members of my family overseas objects in addition to traditions have meaning or they're meaningful. And because we've been so mobile, not only as a result of diaspora, but just because of my mobility as a humanitarian actor or just the number of times my family has moved, like we have no objects, we have no heirlooms. So that psychic space of losing also your the, the tiny objects that may have accompanied you is, is a diffuse one, but it's still, still just as palpable. And I think along with that, um, I recognize we lived in relative abundance compared to my cousins and my relatives overseas, but there was always an underpinning of yearning that was part of, part of, that is part, I think, emotional, just yearning to have that feeling of belonging. But then there's also just the adversity of what it is to be a migrant in a country where you don't have experience. So just that financial adversity also underpinned that connecting. What stuck out to me in that is the the concept of objects. So for me, in my experience, it's not necessarily objects, but it's it's food, and food helps me really relate to to that side of my identity. But I also think that is wrapped up in a whole slew of nostalgic feelings. So Chang, to to flip it back to you, when we talk about nostalgia, maybe we also talk about this idea of, of what it means to return to the homeland. So I know it's it hasn't been as recent for you that you've returned, but but how was that experience? And did it feel, was there a sense of belonging? Did it feel as you expected it to? Or did it bring to light maybe more feelings of disconnect and that displacement that you spoke to earlier? Um, you know, I think definitely the latter. Um, because, so I've been back a number of times um, to China to visit extended family um, since I came to Canada. And I gotta say, with each visit, there was a growing sense of alienation. And the very last time I was there in 2012, um, you know, the disconnect was, it was, it was palpable. I, I, I felt like a foreigner. And the irony is that I can still speak the language very fluently without accent. I can still speak Mandarin Chinese without accent. And I can even speak the local dialect of the hometown where I'm from without accent. And so I've, I've been able to preserve the linguistic skills. And yet I personally don't identify and can't identify with, with my, my surroundings and my milieu. Um, and, uh, so since 2012, I have never gone back and, you know, I've, I've rationalized it a couple of ways because, uh, there was this, there's a, also a sense of guilt that shouldn't I feel connected, you know, um, shouldn't I identify with where my ancestors come from? Um, and I, I, I just can't find it within me, um, to find that identification and uh, so I've rationalized it like a number of ways. Um, I've, I've rational the, the, the one that has worked the best to help me compartmentalize this guilt was the narrative that I tell myself as a member of the Canadian military. It's actually a security and intelligence liability 
for me to be frequenting China, which geopolitically is considered a rival. And so that's the narrative that I've been going with as to, you know, why I haven't gone back all these years and, uh, and visited. Uh, but also I just, I, I have a hard time really just personally identifying um, with that environment. And um, if I could too, I just want to talk a little bit about um, the point that Athena brought up earlier about detachment, because that, that one hit home for me pretty hard. So the level of detachment that I felt from this experience, from the migrant experience, is, is twofold. So the first is the detachment uh, with the... Uh, with where my identity originated from um, in the process of trying to assimilate. So I tried to detach from the past to the extent that I could. And, uh, you know, I was saying to somebody um, a, few, a few weeks ago, actually, when I was talking about this, was that growing up, joining the military, there was an overwhelming sense for me to just want to be white. Like I just wish that I was white and then this whole process would be so easy and so streamlined. And because I've harbored that thought, I've internalized that thought of, a, of assimilation for so long that once I left the military and, and came back to Toronto to start my PhD, um, that was accompanied by a great sense of guilt that I even harbored that thought, that I, I even considered that something that's desirable or a possibility even for me. And so, so I, I, I try to kind of detach myself from, from that part of my identity as well, the assimilation identity. Uh, so now I'm kind of finding myself in this very limbo-like liminal space where I'm still trying to define who I am and what my positionality is within this kind of hodgepodge of different identity markers and, and, and trying to kind of draw the hard boundaries between where one identity ends and another begins. Wow, <laughs> is all I can say. Yeah, I think you've summed up what is such a complex experience um, incredibly well. Athena, uh, before I move on to asking you more about your experience going back to the homeland, is there parts of that that, that you want to speak to um, before I move you along? Yes, thank you. That I agree. Wow, that was a beautiful way of articulating my feeling as well. And that phrase that you said... <laughs> this would be easier if I were white, I think was my, I remember that was my feeling primarily growing up. I remember standing in front of the mirror and this was in Edmonton, of course, standing in front of the mirror, um, wanting to wish like pushing my nose up and looking at what my lips might look like if I didn't have my lips stick out a little bit uh, forward because I, because of my, my genes. And I remember being teased because my lips stuck out and because my bum, they called my, I was called bubble butt and fat lip um, within when my, my elementary school, just because I looked different. So I remember standing in front of the mirror, wishing that my hair were less frizzy, wishing that my hair were straight 
and lighter and wishing that my lips were not quite as fat or standing out. Yes. So that, that phrase, this would be much easier if I were white as a child, I felt growing up and then also just navigating the working world as an adult certainly has felt very, very alienating because of my ethnicity. So yeah, thank you for that as my response um, that helped articulate a, a shared feeling of alienation for me. Um, but your question about going back. Yeah. So you've gone back to the to the homeland. Um, I, you know, you've lived and we've talked about how you've both lived kind of all over and how that's changed your experience. But specifically when you moved back to the Philippines to be closer to your mother's extended family after your father had passed, was it what you remembered or what you remembered and how much of that was accurate in a way? And what was the level? Did you feel like an outsider? Was there a level of belonging, a, a medley of both? How was that experience for you? Yeah, I think it was a medley of both because I had been there before. So I had some context, but I was young enough to not be nostalgic about it, I think. Um, and I, maybe it was easier because also I went to a school where people were kind, people were friendly and Filipinos just culturally tend to be very friendly and full of smiles. So that was welcoming and coming back from the loss of my father. So we did move back to the Philippines after my father passed away. So my mother could have the support of her extended family as she navigated being a widow, widow, which in Indian cultural context, she didn't have the support of my father's family after he died, which I think she would have expected, but it just wasn't culturally a thing that they would extend. So, um, we know that now, but at the time it just felt very, it felt very painful. So she went back to the Philippines for the support of her family. And I think people were sympathetic to us because of that. And then when I went to a school to try to normalize life, um, it was the same school that I had been to before, um, or with some of the same exec, like some of the same principles that I had been to before but they did treat me in some way that I was special. So I think it was a medley given that the people in the school recognized that I was English speaking. I came from Canada. It was a country that to them symbolized wealth, access to opportunity. So people wanted to be my friend. People did reach out and I didn't feel lonely in the same way that I may have in, in Edmonton. And then also just as collective as culture. So people invited me to things just as part of their habit. So for me, it, I have happy memories of going back. I think, I don't know if I, I mean, we would go back every two years to the Philippines. So as a child, I, I don't think I remember feeling that the experience had changed so much just because I had also changed, but it did feel like home. Like I still go back now, still feeling like there's a sense of rootedness that I have there. My family in the Philippines has lived in the same house. And that also helps. Whereas I have no, I think I've moved like 29 times in, in my, in my life. So that's just been a place where I can come back to and have a reasonable expectation of still going to the same market, still seeing some of the same people, still recognizing my environment and still feeling welcome in that way. But I think there's also an acute awareness that it is temporary. So I can't, I can't be too comfortable there. Absolutely. I find so much of that um, that re relates to me and, and what I find in my experience. I find I connect the most to that identity of, of 
British, English, Scottish when I have markers that have existed in my whole life. So I mentioned food, but but in a similar way, that is location for me. That's going back to visit people who've lived geographically in the same area for as long as I can remember. Um, and that, for me, then suddenly symbolizes, okay, I'm back. This is who I am at this point in time, but it's a very temporary, very transient feeling. Um, and then I relate to that completely differently when I'm back in the country. So I've never been able to sum it up like that, but I think that really that really did it for me. And on that note, that is all of our questions for today. And I want to say thank you both so, so much for joining us, for being on Dispersion, for sharing your experiences, for getting personal with us, and being able to put in words conceptual ideas with human lived experiences that I think have brought a new element of what it means to be a diaspora, definitely to me, and I'm sure to everyone who, who will listen. So thank you both. Um, and yeah, and that wraps us up for today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dispersion. Dispersion is a podcast by the Zorian Institute, a nonprofit organization that serves the cause of scholarship and public awareness relating to issues of universal human rights, genocide, and diaspora homeland relations. If you'd like to learn more about diaspora studies or about the Zorian Institute's other projects and programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.zorianinstitute.org, that's Z-O-R-Y-A-N, and find us across your favorite social media platforms at Zorian Institute. Next time, we'll be talking to two brand new guests who share with us their unique diaspora experiences and introduce a new diaspora concept to you. Find Dispersion on your favorite podcast platforms.